Listeners, you are in for such a treat today. I would love to introduce you to Ava Sadegi, who I met on LinkedIn um, and was immediately inspired and needed to speak with her on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Ava, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Sarah. Excited to be here. I remember seeing a few of your posts over the last few months, and um, each one seemed built on the previous one, which, you know, you don't see a lot of that consistency in um, social media very often. Mostly what I loved about it was the way you present the work that you're doing. Well, I'll I'll let you explain it because I I don't think I have the words quite yet to describe what I found in your profile and in the the, um, reading that I did. So let's start the way that I always start my podcast interviews. I'm going to ask you to share something about yourself that most people might not know about you. Something that's not in your LinkedIn profile or your bio, maybe something from your childhood. And the reason I like to start with this is because it gives our listeners some context into where you came from and what you do with the information and and, um, growth that you've had so far. Wonderful. Well, um, I appreciate you for saying those kind words. And I'm honestly excited to hear more about your perspective on consistency um, of of what we do. Um, But I would say that something that not everyone knows about me is um, that I started playing cello when I was four years old. And at the time, um, you know, I, like a lot of kids, hated playing my instrument, but it taught me a lot of discipline. And I still play to this day. I played in college. Um, and it's been something that's taught me a lot and something I get to enjoy as a release too. Oh, I love that. I had no idea you were a musician as well. That is, it doesn't surprise me though, because a lot of really creative um, people who deal with math and engineering actually have a music background, like my husband as well. He's a tech guy and amazing musician. So when you think about cello, First, um, what's a piece that you're working on now that you're really enjoying the challenge of? So I would say um, a piece that I'm probably coming back to is um, Swan. And I um, haven't been practicing as much as I should. Uh, my cello was at my parents' house, so I recently got it back. But it's um, been something that's exciting to pick up music that I was actually very good at um, a few years ago. And it's almost like learning a little bit how to walk again and, you know, dusting off the cobwebs because um, it's not as great as it once was, but um, I I know I can get back into the swing of things soon. Oh, I love that. And who is one of your inspirations? Do you have any contemporary cellists that are inspiring to you or some from obviously generations back? I would say I love Yo-Yo Ma. I think that, you know, a lot of people do. And just he's a classic and shows so much passion and for his instrument and so much care. So I am very, very inspired by just the ability to have so much discipline. Because when you look at instruments and music in general, you oftentimes see the finished product. And you don't really realize that someone might have spent like I did maybe um, hours and hours practicing one measure over and over and over again until you perfect it. And then we'd isolate a whole sheet of music and play fragments of it. It wouldn't make any sense. And then you put it all together. So it takes so much focus to get to that level of playing. Oh my gosh. 
You are speaking my language about everything. I mean, it's a perfect analogy for so much of what we see, where we see the finished product. Um, I just finished um, creating an online course and I took some behind the scenes pictures at the studio where I was doing some final videography and we had boxes stacked high and something lighting on top of a box and, you know, a, a microphone way above my head that had to be rigged with some cords and duct tape <laughs> to make it stay where it needed to be. And and it took hours of setup and all of this energy to think about what we wanted the finished product to look like. You know, we had to have kind of a vision for it. Is that kind of how you work when you're doing your practice sessions? Do you have an idea or have you listened to the piece enough so that you know what you want yours to sound like, even if it's inspired by, as opposed to the same? I think that's a great point you bring up because then a lot of times with music, you kind of do want to be a little different, right? Especially when you get to a place where you are very talented and you can put your own spin on it. I am not as talented as my dad or my sister who can play music by ear. And my dad, even though he's a um, he's a physician, he, he loves to play music and writes all of it. He plays the piece by Mozart and then changes the end of it. So I wish I was that creative, but I do put my own twist on it by, you know, um, having crescendo or going up and down with sounds or maybe extending a note that might have been, um, you know, a short note. So you can put your own little twist on it, but it takes a lot to get to that point, right? Where you've, okay, I understand the foundation and now I can put my own spin on it because I'm going to express myself and be comfortable with it. So I do think it takes some, it takes a lot of time to get to that point. Um, so I do I have a vision. That. Yeah. But I think I kind of let it that go once I get to that place. Right. Well, as an example, you hear musicians do that with classic jazz pieces. You know, you, you listen to somebody like Cassandra Wilson or Melody Gardot and they, they have to learn the song inside and out before they can shift it. But then you hear their phrasing is just slightly different. Hugh Laurie has gotten really good at that over the last few years when it comes to the jazz that he plays and sings. So I love that. I hadn't thought of it in that way before. So I really appreciate that. And this is a perfect segue into your work and what you're doing, because clearly I'm only seeing the where you are now. I didn't get to see how you started. So without telling us what you do, can you tell us what you do through a story, maybe um, a recent accomplishment that you experienced that you can tell us about? Yes, that's such an interesting way of phrasing it. I'm trying to think um, a recent accomplishment that I think um, I'm really proud of is um, an experience that we've had uh, wrapping up some of these um, programs that we support in the early career space and getting feedback from our customers saying that we have made their lives better. We've eased the process and we've really helped them understand the success of these programs. Um, and we're in the internships and early career space. I won't tell you exactly what we do, as you mentioned, but I think that getting feedback from people who actually use your technology and hearing that it does something really positive is um, the most um, incredible feeling in the world. Do you have a specific example? Uh, yes. So um, I can think of 
one of our customers had um, sent a really nice message to us um, and had said how much of an impact that we have made in their initiatives and programs and um, the several thousand programs that are in, interns that are in that program, how much they've been impacted um, in a really positive way of building community and engagement. So that message really, really meant a lot to all of us at our team. And we all celebrated that. Lovely. That's perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. So when you think about um, the space you're in and the, the programs that you've created with your team, and you go back kind of toward the beginning of this, can you think of a, a time early on when you were first maybe in development and creating a vision like we do with our music, where we know kind of what we want it want the end result to be, but we know that it's going to shift as we try to get there. When was a time where you walked away from an interaction or one of these experiences where you realized you were really onto something where you thought, okay, this is really going to make a big difference. This is important. So I think that there were a lot of times I can think of where there was an interaction and I felt like we needed to pivot or there was an interaction where we faced so much obstacle at the beginning because we started this whole idea of Simba around remote internships. And we started in 2017. So Sarah, you can imagine (laughs) that people thought we were crazy and that would never happen. Um, But I think that when everything started shifting um, remote um, overnight during the pandemic in, in March of 2020, we realized that we have a solution that is incredibly timely and we can be supportive in an environment where many of these initiatives and programs are being canceled. So we knew immediately that we could rise to the occasion and be supportive. Uh, we knew that it might not even be with our software. We knew we had a lot of research, a lot of content, webinars we could put out to educate people. So that's something that we did. We launched this whole campaign called Hashtag Save Internships because half of companies canceled their programs in 2020. Some of them canceled um, and then put out an apology in 24 hours saying, wait, we're still going to have our program. Um, but we realized that we have a really important moment to step up and be a solution. And since then, we've understood the power and the impact that we can have in the space. That's awesome. That's awesome. I keep thinking about how many people were kind of on that cutting edge before 2020, talking about distributed teams, talking about remote work in a way that was useful, productive, effective, as opposed to an an alternative for people that um, we would have to deal with, right? Now it's like, oh my gosh, this is actually going to open doors for diverse teams in a way that we never could have done it before. So the reason I bring this up is that in 2019, I read a book called Distributed Teams by John Oden. And um, he used to work with Civic Actions, which is a company my husband works for. And the book is outstanding. And I remember reading it in the fall of 2019. And the the piece that really stood out to me was that if you can get more remote workers, if you can make this work with the communication strategies and inclusivity and engagement that you need, then the diversity of your teams can explode. So I immediately thought of a time that I was in a little startup in Manhattan, in New York City, and everyone in that place was young and mobile 
And I didn't see anyone my age. There's no one around 50 in there. And I don't think I saw any parents, certainly not parents of younger kids and not adults who had to care for aging parents because they they couldn't work in Manhattan because they couldn't live in Manhattan. Or if they lived somewhere else, the commute would have been too long. And I kept thinking about this book and how prescient it was about what we can do when we make remote teams work. So tell me, um, what made you decide that this was a thing, that doing remote internships and having programs like this, where this this was going to be something that could move people forward? So I was a remote intern um, in college. And so I went to the University of Arizona in Tucson, and I was one of those students in high school who was very active. I did every club. I did every extracurricular. I wanted to go to a really great school. And um, I did get into some really notable schools that um, I wanted to go to, but I got a full ride scholarship to the University of Arizona in Tucson. And as somebody who wanted to study um, international relations and political science and economics, that was not the school, as you might imagine. Um, So I I felt so limited by the opportunities that I could access. And so at um, my sophomore year, the virtual student um, federal service program had launched and they were going to take about like 10 or 20 virtual interns, assign them with foreign service officers. And I was so excited. I was like, that means I can be in Tucson and have State Department in D.C. on my resume. And uh, I actually, they didn't give me the offer initially. And I had emailed them back saying that next year, I'm definitely going to apply. What should I do in the meantime to prepare? And they said, Ava, we created a spot for you in the program. (laughs) Wow. Because it was remote, right? They didn't need to give me a desk. They didn't need to pay for my relocation. And the federal government at the time was not giving any interns any um, payment. Um, So they had nothing to lose, right? I was very eager. I was excited. And then I realized, okay, I could do that. Then I found um, a few other leaders I found that are super influential on LinkedIn, um, executives at like Human Rights Council, Amnesty International. And I said, I would love to work for you. I can translate Farsi. I knew a little bit of Arabic, I can't, but you don't need to give me a desk. And people were very receptive. And I started opening up opportunities for myself. I started telling my friends how to kind of hack the way of getting a um, or internship or getting experience on your resume because it's so important, right? Your college degree does not set you up for your job. You don't really know what your job experience is like until you start there. How do you know if you like to work remotely? How do you know if you like to work at a big company or a small company? So that's really became really, really, really passionate about remote internships. Wow. Tell me about your first day, like getting into the work and You just said, you don't even know. You're in college. You're in this academia. What does work even look like? And that totally resonates with me. I I got my bachelor's degree at Colorado State University in business, and I studied international business abroad in Australia. And this was decades before you were in there. And I, I remember leaving school and having this total panic of, I have no idea what work looks like. I mean, I've done some work, but sitting at a desk, like what what would my day look like? What tasks will I be accomplishing? So when was it that you were, when you were first starting that you had like any kind of moment of, oh, this is what grownups do or something like that? I'm assuming there was a moment like that for you. 
to be honest, I think in the remote setting with this program, because it was like 10 hours a week and completely remote. And I, at the time, everyone around me, like my parents and people had all been working in the office. So at the time, I didn't think that this is what work could look like. I thought this was a unique opportunity that I was gifted. It was very special. Um, and I, you know, it was kind of bizarre because it was State Department. They didn't have uh, I don't think many people even use Zoom at the time. This is like 2011. Um, and so it was phone calls and it was, um, you know, emails. And I would be doing research and sending like a, a PDF or a Word document back. So it didn't have that unique, um, this is what grownups do, but it felt like, wow, my work is actually making an impact because I was doing research on the um, trafficking in persons report. Um, and a few other projects. And I was like, wow, this is going to something, not just a professor reading it. So it felt like, okay, that part of it was really exciting to me. Oh, I love that. And you just brought back such a good memory for me. When I had an internship in Washington, DC, it was in person. I worked for the International Trade Commission for Commissioner David Rohr. And I remember the first time I provided him my questions and um, sense about an anti-dumping charge, which was, I want to say that it was Coumadin from China that was being dumped in the U.S. or was being alleged to be dumping dumped in the U.S. at a lower price. And I remember submitting my comments and questions to the commissioner and then sitting in the hearing and hearing him ask one of my questions. And I, I remember that sense of Holy shit. <laughs> that was that was mine. What what I said, what I questioned mattered enough for him to ask that in a hearing, in an international trade commission hearing. So tell me about a moment like that. I would say that I mean that's an exciting moment. I think um it was. just yeah, like just a, you know, and I think even still to this day when your work is recognized or others um really use the work that you're doing, I think it's always really exciting, right? You you feel like, you know, you're creating a positive impact. Um, I think for me, there was a moment where I um, wrote a blog that thinking that it was, you know, nothing, um, you know, big. I was just writing a little um, piece on why um, this program was so great and uh, at the Virtual Student Federal Service Program. And then the State Department put it in the middle of their Foreign Service Journal on the center fold page, and they made it the spotlight of the whole article. And um, they were so excited about it. I got like a framed copy, and it was like the most read piece of the journal that year was how to intern at wow. State from Home. And I was like, me? <laughs> so that was pretty, pretty exciting, especially when you have like no intention, you know, to have something right. like that happen. I, I don't know. I think that that's more meaningful when you're just doing it for the, the purpose of doing it. And then it ends up being such a big deal to other people. I think usually when we have the intention of this is going to be a big deal, it rarely is. I, mean, I And I think about that in life in our pivotal moment stories where something's happening in our lives and we think this is it, like, this is a really big deal. This is a turning point in my life. And then two weeks later, it's really not <laughs> like really not. And then those little things, those meaningful moments, like um, one time when I was with my boys when they were little and we were celebrating the, the Jewish day of atonement, which is the day that we ask for forgiveness. 
And I had given, we were at a duck pond and I had given my older son who was four, I had given him some breadcrumbs to throw for the ducks. And there's a ceremony called Tashlich, where some Jewish people, they'll throw breadcrumbs or something into moving water during this time, the, the Jewish holidays, um, to get rid of your sins, to say, um, now it's gone and I can start over and I can let go of those awful feelings and and apologize to people and and do something different. You know, it's not just an apology and then you go back to status quo. You actually apologize and make a change. And I remember this moment when I said to Jacob, okay, here's a piece of bread and what I want you to do, and I don't really believe in sin, especially for children. What I want you to do is think about something you did that might've hurt somebody else's feelings that you probably could have done better and that you're still feeling kind of icky about it. And I want you to put that on this bread, to think about it on this bread and throw it to the ducks. And once it's gone, you get to let go of those icky feelings and do it right next time and make the better choice next time. And he's four years old. And I'm thinking he's not understanding a word I'm saying. <laughs> but in but in that moment, he holds up this bread and he looks at Max, his younger brother, who's two. And he says, this is for the times I didn't share with Max. And he throws the bread to the ducks. And my heart just exploded. Wow. All I could think was, good job, mom. <laughs> oh, <just> <laughs> what I thought was, wow, he totally got that. And now I look back at that moment. At the moment, of course, I just thought, wow, that was so cool that he got that. But now here we are 20 years later, literally 20 years later. And I think about that as a pivotal time in our lives, in our relationships, because of what I understood that he understood in that moment. I knew what he could yes. handle. I knew what his capacity was. That's so powerful. And I feel like you also learned, um, I think, about the goodness um, in Jacob as far as, you know, just really being so compassionate. Um, I, I remember sharing with my sister and whoever would but the other person would pick, right? So that things would be very even. My mom had this strategy, but that is so, so sweet and so thoughtful. And uh, I couldn't agree more with you on this whole notion of things that we really blow up that don't really make an impact or a difference and these smaller moments that are so powerful. I really appreciate you for sharing that with me. Oh, well, thank you. I, I don't think enough of us realize that, that we have those stories in us. We don't even know they're there until somebody asks us the question. I, I would love to hear now, now that you've kind of shared more of the background <laughs> of what you do, for the audience, um, tell us what Samba does. Simba? Yes, yes Simba, Simba. Uh, for symbiotic Simba. relationships. Oh, I love that. And then <laughs> I know where that came from because that's awesome. <laughs> Yes. Well, Simba, um, we help companies um, design and scale their early careers programs like internships and apprenticeship programs. And we don't do the recruiting. We're the back end. So companies use us to onboard, manage all their projects and engage with their talent before, during and after the program so they can re-recruit um, from this talent. And it's been really um, exciting because this is the talent that is incredibly diverse Companies are really planting seeds for economic mobility. Their companies are growing so much. And oftentimes I would think of internships and these programs about 
it's the intern gaining value, but it really is this symbiotic relationship where both the intern and the organization are gaining value. So that's what we believe a true um, program is all about. Wow. And Simba, symbiotic, did you come up with that or is that kind of a team thing? I did to come up with that. <laughs> and it's funny when I was doing initial pitches of Simba, people sometimes wouldn't remember what we did because we were so early, but they were like Simba. They would really remember the name and it's Simba S Y M B A. Um, so not for the Lion King, but symbiotic. <laughs> that of course is the immediate image in my head is Simba the Lion. <laughs> but it's positive. It's so lion. it's a great, great connotation. <laughs> It is. He's kind of a hero, isn't he? The hero of the story after going through all the trauma of his experience, which um, it sounds like all of us have been there at some point or another. So that works too. <laughs> I'm I'm still kind of in this spot where I'm imagining you. I, I don't know why this is sticking with me, but I'm imagining you sitting at your computer as this remote intern. And then years later, sitting at your computer being remote and running your own business. And that difference in in not only the excitement of what you're doing, but the team that you've built around you. Did something just pop into your head about an experience with that? Well, it's just so funny to think about me sitting at a desk running a business because that's honestly building a company in Simba is something that I was really not trained or intending to do initially. My passion was, as I mentioned at the beginning, human rights and economics. That's what I really wanted to do. And there was a moment um, where I was fortunate to do a fellowship with late Congressman John Lewis that things kind of took a pivot and I got really excited about using technology for good. But it is so wild to think about that um, connection that you made from being a remote intern to creating a business that supports others to do that. Well, that's, um, we started at the beginning of this conversation before I hit record talking a little bit about StrengthsFinder. And one of the things that you were, you were mentioning was that idea of um, not really knowing and having that shift in who you are, taking that assessment twice, at least twice, and having really different results each time. And I mentioned that oftentimes when you're younger, you've only been exposed to certain ways of uh, approaching problem solving and, and relationship building because of your environment. And then as you get older and you're exposed to more options, more ideas, more, more ways of, of approaching things, um, you find that you're better at doing certain things in different ways than how you have been doing them in the past. So that's why I think I have this, this mirror image of you years apart of, of doing your internship and then shifting and, and offering so much to the interns of now and into the future in, in community, especially. Thank you. And I think you were mentioning this a little bit, but the team behind what we do and the community of our advisors, our investors, our customers, 
And we work with people who are excited about early careers, excited about helping people at the entry point of their career. So you can imagine that our community that we're involved whenever we go to events, it's amazing people. It's a diverse community. It's people who are excited about the next generation of talent, who are investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and our values are strongly aligned. And I would say that building a team has been the most challenging yet the most rewarding aspect of the whole process for me, especially this early in my career to have the opportunity to um, build a hiring process, to build a team, to um, learn how to make very critical um, decisions and do make some uh, really painful calls that you know you would not have to make if you were in this position. Because uh, I care about each person deeply and uh, we're a company. So it's a form of economic stability for people. So it's a big responsibility on my shoulders too. Yes, I can imagine that. So um, tell me about a time in the last three years, four years, as you've been building this company that you um, you feel like you messed up and that it was one of those really critical learning opportunities. Oh, I think there's so many times that I've made mistakes on the journey, <laughs> um, but I think that that's what a startup is, right? It's both, you're supposed to be doing things differently. So that means that they could either go one or two ways they hit and they're super successful or um, they don't. And it's a key learning. So it's always, always learning. I think that um, some mistakes that I made at the beginning um, and I'm learning to get better at is trying to search for a yes Um in the process of like whether it's investors or customer, when there's um, not uh, as much need or value, and making sure that I'm prioritizing my efforts in relationships that we can provide value. Because I think as a founder, you want to hear yes as much as possible, and being comfortable with no and saying no to certain opportunities that lead away from focus are really important because I remember we said yes to an opportunity turned out that they really didn't need the value of what we were providing because they were still innovating, still developing. And, you know, it led to us, um, you know, we're still, you know, good friends and good, you know, good communication, but it wasn't the right fit. So, you know, rather than searching for a yes or, you know, changing your focus, stick to uh, being authentic, being who you are and be comfortable saying no. And that's a big learning for me. (laughs) Yes. Well, I have to tell you, as an entrepreneur my whole life, but just in the last few years, it it took me getting near 50 years old to be able to say, oh, that's not going to be a good fit. And actually, I fired a client once. I actually had to say, this is not going to serve either of us well. Neither of us are going to end this with satisfaction in this relationship. So I'm going to give you a couple of referrals for other coaches to work with. And, um, and, and he was really upset, but that's a lesson. I think every person, but especially entrepreneurs have to learn is not to water down what you're doing to appeal to a greater audience, but finding exactly the right audience for what you're offering. Cause there it's there, it exists. And you already had that information. You knew that it existed. Oh, wow. That's, that's such a key lesson. I love that. And when you think about where this is going, um, I, one of the things that popped into my head was that when you're talking about a diverse workforce, and especially in early career, 
I'm also thinking a lot about a lot of my audience for this program and for um, all of my other coaching is particularly women in their 40s and 50s in transition. They've chosen to completely switch gears in their careers. And they are also part of your audience and your community. Anyone who is switching gears and trying something completely different in their career, um, women and parents who are now empty nesting or about to empty nest. Um, I, I'm thinking particularly about the people who often listen to this podcast and I end up working with, with StrengthsFinder. So have you had that kind of interaction much? Have you noticed that shift as well? Yes, I've definitely seen a major shift. I think it's, you know, one thing because of people wanting the desire to change gears and learn the other skills, but there's also a need and a demand uh, from the market and jobs and opportunities to learn new skills um, to really set us up for success. So I think it's really exciting to see that everyone can really change and shift gears at any point. As I shared with you, I shifted completely, you know, 180 from um, the public sector to a for-profit startup. And so I think there's an opportunity at any time. We are seeing that our customers are getting more and more innovative. We think that um, we're seeing this, this whole notion of a return ship of people returning back to the workforce, whether it's after 10 years of um, maybe starting a family and coming back, or whether it's um, wanting to learn a completely different skill. We've seen people learning how to teach themselves how to code, getting back into it, and, and being very, very successful. So companies are really rethinking a lot of their recruiting strategies, too. We are seeing um, companies start programs with um, veterans returning back and, and getting them into these initiatives and opportunities uh, we've seen companies start to remove even the four-year college degree and also um, work with people who've been formerly incarcerated to make sure they can access job opportunities. So companies are you know, throwing out the rule book and getting a lot more creative. And I think that means that people also should. At any point in your career, you can change it up to some degree, right? I think becoming a doctor overnight is not really possible, <laughs> but you know, learning how to code or reinventing yourself. There's so many great opportunities to do it. No career, especially people I admire is, is linear. It's always been um, shifts and movements. I know Sarah, you mentioned to me that you've had periods where you spend three years focused on one aspect when you wanted to, you know, focus in on library sciences and then have shifted at a point you were interested in higher ed. So I think it's, you know, that's also really telling. I love that. You, you make me feel so hopeful. And, and that is, that is such a gift hearing the way that you speak about it. Now, you said returnship. Is that a word? It is a word. You can Google it. <laughs> I don't know if it's on in the Webster Dictionary, but I know that it is a word I use at least. <laughs> wow, that is so great. Returnship instead of internship. That, oh my gosh, that feels good. It feels right. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that word. If um, if our audience wants to get in touch with you or hear more about what you're doing, what is the best way to do that? And for the audience, these links and information will be in the show notes on this podcast episode for at elkinsconsulting.com. So no need to pause and write things down. Wonderful. Well, you can find me. I'm very active on LinkedIn 
And my name is Ava, A-H-V-A, Sudagi, and you'll share the link. And um, you can check us out at Simba.io. And we share a lot more about our impact and the work we do on our social impact page. Would absolutely love to connect with your audience and truly love the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Thanks, Ava. This has been such a pleasure. And I definitely want to keep in touch so that when your eventual book is written, we can promote it through this podcast and through LinkedIn, because I know that that has to be coming at some point in the in the future. Is that something that's on your your list? I think you must um, be able to hopefully predict the future, because I, I mean, I honestly was talking about this the last week with my co-founder, thinking we could write the most amazing book. We're thinking of co-founding a book almost about our experience building a startup as two women of color and the experience from fundraising, the experience from all the challenges, the ups and downs, and sharing both of our narratives, me as the CEO and her as the CTO. So stay tuned for that in a few years. (laughs) Yes, I will read it. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. And um, I'm sure our listeners will be following up to to keep that in mind into the future. Ava, thank you so much for joining me, taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sarah. Now listen to me, honey, while I say, how could you tell me?